The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Now, from our nation's capital, this is Bloomberg Sound On. We're going to be focused on our own military readiness in the Indo-Pacific because our national security interests are so tied. We have a very important mission to accomplish. It is the Ukrainians that are making the final decisions uh, when it comes to operations. Bloomberg Sound On. Politics, policy, and perspective. From D.C.'s top names. This is an extreme threat to our democracy, to our freedom, uh, to our rights. This is going to be a peek into the closing argument. I'm curious how he'll weave in what has actually been successful. Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. The war games begin in Russia. Welcome to the fastest hour in politics as Moscow teams up now with China and India for major military exercises That'll last the next week in Russia's Far East. We'll discuss what this means for the U.S.-China relationship with John Kirby of the White House National Security Council just a day after Taiwan shoots down a Chinese drone. Analysis from our panel, Bloomberg Politics contributor, Republican strategist Rick Davis, along with Democratic strategist Joel Payne this hour. Later, we'll look at the job at hand for President Biden tonight as he prepares to address the nation in primetime. Political analyst Lincoln Mitchell joins us from Columbia University. First, it was China's war games around Taiwan. Now it's Russia teaming with China and India for war games that include 50,000 troops, more than 140 aircraft and 60 warships. In Russia's far east in the Sea of Japan, this starts today. And these exercises have been held before, but they take on new meaning with the war in Ukraine, with China's outrage over Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan and the deteriorating relationship there. I talked about this today with retired Admiral John Kirby, spokesman for the White House National Security Council, started by asking him how the U.S. was interpreting this display of force. Nations have to decide for themselves how they're going to look after military readiness, but we've been very clear now is not the time uh, to be treating Russia in any kind of normal way, and certainly not in a way that uh, that they could glean improved military capabilities from that interaction, such as an exercise mm-hmm. like this. Uh, uh, we were mindful of the exercise. Obviously, we'll watch it as close as, we, as close as we can, but we're going to be focused on our own military readiness in the Indo-Pacific because our national security interests are so tied to so many other allies and partners uh, in the region, partners who are worried about China's increasing aggressive and coercive behavior, partners who are worried about what Russia is doing in Ukraine. So we're going to stay yep. we're going to stay focused on our own military readiness. Knowing that Iran is now providing drones to Russia for use in Ukraine, what yeah. do you make of this idea of China, Russia and Iran as the new axis? I don't think we're uh, describing it in that way. Uh, Look, Russia uh, realizes uh, that it's been further isolated and ostracized as a result of what it's doing in Ukraine by so Mm -hmm. much of the international community. So they're turning to to those few countries that they can turn to for uh, assistance. Uh, Turning to Iran is indicative not just of how isolated they really have become, 
but how much Iran is isolating itself further from the international community by being willing to provide these kinds of capabilities to Russia. And look, we're concerned about those capabilities, of course. It's just further evidence that Putin wants to kill more Ukrainians, which is why we're going to stay focused on making sure that we're arming the Ukrainians with the kind of capabilities they need uh, to beat back uh, Russian offensives inside their own country. India is also taking part in these exercises, as we mentioned, Admiral. It seems to be still sort of straddling the line on Russia's war with Ukraine. They have put on hold plans to buy some weapons and cooperate uh, militarily with Russia, but now we have them taking part in these exercises. Has the U.S. expressed disappointment with India's leaders for their taking part? I certainly wouldn't talk about diplomatic discussions here. Uh, Every nation has to make their own decisions. India's got to make its own decisions about its bilateral relations with other countries and certainly uh, countries that it's going to exercise militarily with. I would just say what I said before. Uh, We don't believe that this is a time for business as usual with Russia. We certainly don't believe it's a time for anybody, anybody to be helping them with their military capabilities. Well, I know you've sent that message to China repeatedly here, and we understand trade between China and Russia has increased in value by about 30 percent this year. At what point will the U.S. start considering secondary sanctions, Admiral? Well, I don't want to get ahead of uh, any uh, decisions uh, by the president one way or the other. Uh, Look, China has a choice to make. Uh, And uh, they can either choose uh, to join the rest of the world uh, in in condemning what Russia is doing in Ukraine uh, and not helping him continue to kill innocent Ukrainians going forward, or they can yeah. decide you know, to, to assist that effort. Uh, we, uh, we hope that they'll, uh, they'll make better decisions going forward. In the meantime, we're going to stay focused on making sure Ukraine can succeed on the battlefield and that Mr. Putin continues to suffer severe costs and consequences for what he's done. And he has. His economy is in tatters. He, he, he is not uh, able to, for, for instance, regenerate precision-guided munitions on the battlefield the way that he wanted to. And now he's forced mm-hmm. to turn to Iran for uh, unmanned uh, aerial systems. So it's having an effect, this pressure that's being placed internationally on Mr. Putin, it's having an, an effect on him, uh, and we're going to continue to, to raise those costs for, uh, for Mr. Putin. John Kirby talking with us from the North Lawn of the White House earlier today. We talked about a number of issues tied to national security, and we're going to walk through them over the next few minutes here with our panel. Bloomberg Politics contributor Rick Davis is with us, along with Democratic strategist Joel Payne, former director of African-American advertising for Hillary Clinton's presidential campaign. Rick, I'm going to start with you here as we have what appears to be kind of a new level with China, Russia, India, 50,000 troops. The numbers here, this is big stuff, 140 aircraft, 60 warships. How should the U.S. be viewing this? It's supposed to last a week, and is it not a different level than the last time they did this. Well, I think that everything now is a heightened, you know, sense of awareness, right? I mean, and and there have been a lot more activity uh, on war games uh, by the Russians and by the Chinese that are not typically scheduled. These things are usually choreographed with all the various countries saying, okay, this is when we'll do yours. We'll do ours right after that. Um, And it's it's all kind of a, an elaborate dance. This is outside of that. And so, uh, China and Russia have been very aggressive with their war games. We, we've seen a lot of press around the, the activity China did just around Taiwan recently, and this is just upping the ante. So it's yep. threatening. It's not good. And, and, and it should concern us because uh, the Indo-PAC, uh, especially India's participation in these games, uh, mm-hmm. is a great red flag for us to focus on. And I think means we need to focus more attention on India.
Yeah, well, that's right. Uh, India is is part of this, Joel, which is, I think, very troubling for the administration following the overtures made. But how about China? Look, nobody's going to be surprised by anything that Russia does. But isn't this a direct message from China to the West to say, yeah, we've we've got our own friends over here? Look, all of this stuff is complicated when you talk about the geopolitics here. The saber rattling is always to be taken seriously. But I also think it maybe reflects an effectiveness of the Biden foreign policy. Um, that the work that the Biden administration is doing in Russia to push back on the war in Ukraine, the work that the Biden administration has been doing to, for instance, um, you know, try to bracket China economically with, you know, the CHIPS Act and um, mm-hmm. other um, economic news internationally. I think I think some of what we're seeing is maybe a reaction to that. And um, it's always to be taken seriously, but it is a part of a big, complicated world. Also thinks uh, reminds us, uh, rather, Rick, to think about the chance of something going wrong. When you put that many people, that many pieces of hardware all together in one place, uh, things can happen, as we have seen in this part of the world. All of this while the, the Chinese drones are flying over uh, Taiwan. Uh, this is a more dangerous moment than we're used to. Yeah, and readiness goes up, and, and but there is good military-to-military communication, especially with the Indians uh, and the U.S. military. So those channels are open. They're talking. They're they're trying to understand what they're trying to accomplish you mm-hmm. know, without you know learning anything they, they, they don't want to give away. Uh, and, and, and I think right now, even though there's a lot of saber, lat, saber rattling, as you said, um, it, it is not a time where I think China has chosen to uh, – uh, try and create a incident with the United States. Yeah. I, it, everybody I've talked to says it's not in their interest. They're not militarily capable mm-hmm. of pulling something like that off, and it's not a good time to test this administration. They still like playing with Taiwan, though, and we've seen four days in a row now drones uh, that came from mainland China, described as civilian drones, interestingly, uh, buzzing uh, islands that, that, that are associated with Taiwan, that Taiwan considers their own. There have been warning shots until yesterday when Taiwan actually shot one down This is my exchange with John Kirby on that. Well, look, we support Taiwan's uh, right and ability to defend itself. That's what the Taiwan Relations Act is all about. The United States will continue to help them defend themselves. I'll let them speak to their operations and what they're doing or what they're not doing. Uh, But uh, these reports are exactly what we've been talking about when we're talking about the risk of miscalculation um, and rising the risks of conflict. And nobody benefits from conflict in and around the Taiwan Strait. We have long said we don't want to see the status quo change unilaterally, certainly not by force. And what you're seeing from the PR is an effort to change the status quo by flying more over the median line, by by yeah. flying unmanned aerial systems uh, in and around Taiwan and around the Taiwan Strait and, and islands. I mean, this is about changing the status quo in the in the Chinese mind, and, and we're just gonna we find that unacceptable. Uh, we're we're not gonna just abide by that. Uh, we're gonna continue to make sure that Taiwan can defend itself. And the U.S. will continue to sail through the Taiwan Strait. Is is that going to happen again imminently, Admiral? Well, I don't have any future operations to speak to. You saw we just did that uh, last weekend with two uh, U.S. Navy cruisers. Uh, We will continue to sail, operate, and fly where international law permits us to do that. The Taiwan Strait is international waters. So uh, I certainly, without without briefing a a specific uh, transit here in the future, uh, I can tell you we're going to continue to operate where international law permits us to. There you have it from the spokesman for the White House National Security Council. It sounds like status quo to me, Joel, and how careful he is and the administration is in addressing this Taiwan issue. Yeah, look, I mean, for a long time, our policy has been strategic ambiguity around Taiwan, around China. Um, I think the Pelosi visit certainly amplifies the pressure 
um, on how this is handled. I do think, um, you know, what Kirby was saying there, though, is the administration is not going to back down. I think it's important for the president to show that he's not intimidated, that um, the American forces aren't going to be intimidated by um, any of these more aggressive actions by China. And I, I also think it's important to demonstrate that you're on the right side of history. I think maybe that's why the Pelosi visit um, was so complicated because I'm yeah. sure the president actually agreed with Speaker Pelosi, mm-hmm. but his role as president probably precluded him from, you know, sharing his full thoughts on it. You surprised by how little reaction there was to China, Rick, and seeing that drone shot down? You know, I think it's in everybody's interest to make that sort of a ho-hum moment. And okay. uh, But the message was sent to China that the uh, Taiwanese aren't going to sit back and let themselves be threatened by this country. Well, that's for sure. Rick Davis and Joel Payne with us on the panel as we review our conversation with John Kirby from the White House. Coming up, the latest in the war in Ukraine and the potential for a demilitarized zone around the nuclear power plants where U.N. inspectors have arrived. It's coming up next. This is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On on Bloomberg Radio. The nuclear inspectors made their way into the plant. They've actually finished their first day as we keep an eye on what's happening in Ukraine. The International Atomic Energy Agency director and a few members of an inspection team left the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant after several hours they spent inside the Ukrainian state-run company that manages the plant says five of a dozen inspectors are expected to stay until Saturday. That's where we are with things. And that is where I pick up our conversation with retired Admiral John Kirby, spokesman for the National Security Council at the White House. We'll see how the panel can uh, feel about this as well. As we work our way through a number of different stories, this is a big one, though, with we with a, a focus on the war in Ukraine. And I started again in this case by asking about, about Russia's posture in Ukraine now, the number of casualties they've suffered and exactly what state of readiness the Russian military is in. Uh, the, the Russians have clearly suffered uh, an enormous number of casualties. I, I don't have the exact figure today and we're, we're, we're careful uh, not to talk about those numbers uh, too specifically because, uh, frankly, it, it changes literally every day. But they have suffered an enormous amount of casualties, both killed and wounded. Uh, and we know that to be the fact because we also know that Mr. Putin is going to extraordinary lengths to try to recruit and retain soldiers for this fight, uh, even to yeah. the point where he's 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 turning to, to, to prisons uh, and he's upping the recruitment age uh, well into uh, well into the 50s. Uh, so we know uh, that he's he's having a manpower issue. He's also having, quite frankly, command and control issues on the ground, unit cohesion and morale uh, and bat- battlefield performance issues in Ukraine by using this largely con script force uh, that doesn't yeah. have the same will to fight that the Ukrainians do and certainly doesn't have the capabilities that they do. We understand that uh, new UN nuclear inspectors have arrived at the nuclear yes. power plant in southeastern Ukraine. This is something uh, that has been uh, long in coming. I know that the U.S. wanted to see this happen. Should the U.S. also take part in setting up a demilitarized zone around that plant, Admiral? 
The, the president's been clear we're not going to have U.S. boots involved in, in the U.S. troops, I'm sorry, involved in the war in Ukraine. So I see no role for the United States in, in creating a demilitarized zone around that power plant. We do want there to be uh, such a demilitarized zone around that plant. We don't want to see the plant be the scene of, of combat action. That should never be the case. Uh, and yeah. it's the Russians who have militarized the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant, and we urge and call on them to demilitarize it as quickly as possible. Also, and I'm glad you pointed out that the inspectors are there. We're glad to see that. Uh, we hope that they're given unfettered access, and we look forward to their report about the safety and the operational efficiency uh, of that nuclear power plant, because, again, the, the danger could be so much bigger, not just to the people of, of Ukraine, but, but even to, uh, to the region. So it's important that those inspectors are given unfettered access and allowed to do their job and to stay as long as they need to stay uh, to be yeah. able to report back. And apparently that will be until Saturday, as we read on the terminal, with the inspectors continuing their work. Uh, John Kirby there speaking to us again from the North Lawn of the White House as we reassemble the panel. Bloomberg Politics contributor Rick Davis and Democratic strategist Joel Payne. Uh, Rick, it's almost like you wrote his answer on the status of Russian forces right now, but it really hits home uh, exactly, you know, how, how challenging this could be actually for Vladimir Putin's forces to go any further in Ukraine this winter. Yeah, no matter what the disinformation is, just look at what he's having to do to man a, a military in the field, right? I mean, this was a poorly planned, poorly staffed operation to begin with. And now the fact that he has to go out and recruit prisoners and 50-year-olds. That's mean, incredible. I remember being 50 once. <laughs> of course, I felt better then than I do now. But, uh, you know, going to war? No, thank you. Uh, yeah, I don't and, think I'm, I'm ready for that at the moment. And he um, can't hide from that, right? That's something he's got to do to be able to sustain that, that effort in in ukraine and yeah. it's, it's exposing his hand well we've got a situation around this power plant here uh joel you heard kirby say that they'd like to have a demilitarized zone but of course the u.s can't put the the risk of having boots on the ground to help make that happen how much of a flashpoint is this going to be i mean we get a report from inspectors but that doesn't mean the russians are ever going to leave it i think the president has been clear on what his red lines are around ukraine i think uh, ground forces on the ground in Ukraine is a no-go right now. And, and by the way, I think that that's supported by the American people. Um, I think there's a heavy disinterest right now in this country uh, politically in sending U.S. troops uh, to another country. Um, I do think, however, it's very clear that the president and that his national security team are all in on supporting the Ukrainians. And I do think that that um, is a good balance, the right balance to strike right now. If there's a meltdown, though, Rick, I mean, at some point, the United States would have to get more involved here. It's not only the danger uh, involved with a, with a meltdown at the, the largest nuclear power plant in Europe, but it provides an enormous amount of energy to Ukraine that is already having trouble keeping up with demand based on what China's or based on what Russia is doing. Yeah, absolutely. Any any kind of event that uh, releases uh, radioactive uh, material at that plant uh, puts into risk uh, Europe. Uh, but also Russia itself, right? Because you know, that stuff doesn't have borders that they identify. Right. And, and so you, you have to hope that, that protecting his own people has to you know, fall into his decision matrix. But you're right. Uh, you know, like the threats of using nuclear weapons and like the threat of, 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 of weaponizing a nuclear power plant, it does complicate the U.S. Uh, ability to uh, keep out of the direct fray and, and continue to be the supporter of the Ukrainian people. So mm -hmm. we'll consult, obviously, with our European allies, uh, but 
it, it could create quite an event, but but there's no self-interest in his part, right? I mean, like, he's got to worry about his own country and the impact of that nuclear plant uh, uh, going across border. Rick Davis and Joel Payne will be with us for the hour. Our panel today on the fastest hour in politics as we turn back into the U.S. here. Domestic politics next and President Biden preparing for a primetime address to the nation. We'll be joined straight ahead by Lincoln Mitchell, political analyst on the job for Joe Biden. This is Bloomberg. All right, Charlie, thanks. We're just a few hours away now, 8 p.m. Eastern time. You'll hear it. You'll see it on Bloomberg TV and radio and, of course, on your terminal, President Biden in prime time from Philadelphia. This is the big speech. What a windup we've had. If you look back over the past couple of weeks and particularly starting a week ago tonight, that was really the warm up here. The president's been testing the ultra MAGA lines and so forth, never mind the semi fascism thing for for the balance of the summer. You're talking about ultra MAGA, Senator Scott, the MAGA agenda and so forth. But it kind of took on a new level last week as the president spoke not only to that fundraiser, but before a hall of supporters in Rockville, Maryland. The MAGA Republicans don't just threaten our personal rights and economic security. They're a threat to our very democracy. They refuse to accept the will of the people. They embrace, embrace political violence. They don't believe in democracy. This is why in this moment, those of you who love this country, Democrats, independents, mainstream Republicans, we must be stronger, more determined, and more committed to saving America than the MAGA Republicans are destroying America. You wonder if he'll raise his voice like that and use similar language because this has been kind of, like I said, a, a, a gathering storm from the White House. Corrine Jean-Pierre, the press secretary, was asked today what we should expect and exactly what the president means calling out Republicans and so-called ultra-MAGA. The way that he sees is the MAGA Republicans are the most energized part of the Republican Party. Uh, the, that extreme, this is an extreme threat to our democracy, to our freedom, uh, to our rights. Uh, they just don't respect the rule of law. You heard that from uh, the president. Uh, and... Um, you know, they are pursuing an agenda uh, that takes away people's rights. We just got excerpts from the speech while I was playing that for you. Very brief. MAGA forces, he will say, are determined to take this country backwards to an America where there is no right to choose, no right to privacy, no right to contraception, and no right to marry who you love. Let's bring in Lincoln Mitchell, political analyst, adjunct associate research scholar at the Institute of War and Peace Studies at Columbia University. It's great to have you back, Lincoln. Striking the right tone is awfully important here, as this appears to be the the kickoff, if you will, to the general election. Is the president looking in the right direction here? He's not talking about legislative accomplishments. This is a MAGA speech. That's right. And it's a tough it's a tough balance he has to strike here. If he were just trying to do you know the thing that will help the Democrats the most in the fall, he would stick to abortion rights, gun reform, his recent legislative accomplishments. Katanji Brown-Jackson on the Supreme Court and the extremism of the Republican Party. But he's not doing that. He's really going and talking about the heart of the problem of the crisis of American democracy in a way that he has not done since really he became a candidate with a very few exceptions here or there. And that may not be the best political strategy, but it is an essential part of presidential leadership. When the country is threatened, when our democracy is threatened by foreign or domestic forces, the president kind of has to say something. 
And I think that's what's behind this decision by by President Biden. Yeah. The White House uh, has made clear through a, a senior official talking with reporters earlier, it'll be about 25 minutes long. When you approach this, Lincoln, from a writing standpoint, what do you have in your mind here? Does he need to have a couple of memorable lines that become sound bites after? Is this about a great arc in the speech? What's what's the job for the writers? Well, remember, when you think about being a writer, a speech writer for a politician, you think about who you're writing for, right? So you'd make a very different speech for, I don't know, a Barack Obama than for a Joe Biden on the Democratic yes. side, right? Or a Donald Trump or a George W. Bush or somebody. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, Biden is not burdened by great oratorical skills, right? <laughs> this is not Mario Cuomo, if you, if I can make a dated uh, reference, you know, uh, just making some speech yeah. that people will, will remember for decades. Biden doesn't have that in him. What he is good at is connecting with people and communicating a basic sense of decency. So that's what I would focus on. Mm-hmm. Come on here. We're Americans. In America, when you lose an election, you put your head down and you work harder the next time. You know, mess- messages like that. Rather than, even though as a pl- the political scientist in me is perfectly fine with language like this is a threat of fascism, mm-hmm. but I don't know that Biden can nail that home the way a better orator might. Interesting. Does he stray off the speech? Does he look into the camera, drop a, a classic Biden line, or is that just too dangerous? Well, you're asking two different questions there. Should he stray okay. off the speech? Yeah. I don't know. I, I, on a on a speech of this nature where he's putting a lot of time and his speechwriters are putting a lot of time Heavily into produced, it and he'll go over yes. several drafts, he should probably stay on, on, on script. Mm-hmm. Is he likely to stray off the speech? Yeah, it's Joe Biden. So the short answer to that is yes. Okay. This is how, you know, we, we try to figure how you're going to fill the amount of time. Now, is when he's talking about MAGA Republicans, Lincoln, one of the questions that came up in the briefing today I found really interesting at the White House, as, as he also encourages the involvement of what he likes to refer to as mainstream Republicans, how does the White House tell the difference or how should Americans interpret this to, to draw the line between a MAGA Republican and a so-called mainstream Republican? Are, are they wearing different colored T-shirts or, or how does this work? Well, what Biden is trying to do is to send a message to a American voter who may be a Republican, may be not registered with with any party, is not a Democrat, and say, listen, if you believe in a government that taxes less and has less involvement in the economy, if you believe that maybe we shouldn't, we should have a more uh, traditional, conventional view of, of of social issues, you still can't join in with the Donald Trumps because they fundamentally don't believe in democracy. And to not believe in democracy is to not believe in America. That's where he wants to go with this. The problem is that as an observer, looking at Republican election primary returns and things like that, the distinction between MAGA Republicans and mainstream Republicans is one without a difference. And we see this in many Republican primaries. I'll just point to the one in Georgia for the U.S. Senate, which occurred a little while ago, where Herschel Walker, as you know, won the nomination. Herschel Walker is an ultra MAGA guy. I think we would all agree on that. Mm -hmm. But David Perdue is also a MAGA guy, right? Mm -hmm. And, And there's this, I think the punditry and the mainstream of the Democratic Party desperately wants to say they're not all Donald Trump. They're not all MAGA, but MAGA, the MAGA movement has captured the Republican Party. And Biden can't quite come out and say that. Right. Exactly. These are some fine lines. Lincoln, great to talk to you again. Lincoln Mitchell joining us from the Institute of War and Peace Studies at Columbia University. We'll play this to the panel next. Uh, Rick Davis will have his input here, as well as Joel Payne, Democratic strategist with us for the hour on Bloomberg Sound On. I'm Joe Matthew in Washington. This is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. 
This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. As America waits to hear from the president, or is it? I don't know. Primetime presidential address, does it mean what it used to? We'll see how the president uses it. Of course, as we discussed here on Sound On, it'll be cut up 10 ways to Sunday, and it'll be all over social media before the president is even back in Washington. So people will receive this in various ways, of course, here on Bloomberg starts 8 p.m. Eastern time, Bloomberg TV and radio as we reassemble the panel for more on this. Rick Davis and Joel Payne are with us today. Bloomberg politics contributor, Republican strategist Rick Davis, Democratic strategist Joel Payne, former director of African-American advertising for Hillary Clinton's presidential campaign. Joel, what do you want to hear as a Democrat from this president tonight? Do you want to hear about ultra MAGA or do you want to hear about accomplishments made in the Democratic-led Congress? You know, I think speeches all have different utilities based on the moment that we're in and what the end goal is. I think it's pretty clear to me, Joe, you actually said this early in your conversation with Lincoln. This, to me, sounds like it's a predicate for 2024. And I think the president, um, if you'll remember, when he decided to jump in the primary in 2019 for the 2020 race, he talked about the battle for the soul of the country. This feels like an interesting bookmark to that conversation that he jumped into there. I think he's forwarding that conversation now. And I do think that it's going to lay out the rationale for potentially another Biden term and why it's important to push back on the anti-democratic moves of some Republicans. Does it compromise Joe Biden's image, though, of of being, you know, the compromiser in chief, of being the bipartisan who knows and used to be friends with all these Republicans and can actually, you know, cut through the partisanship and get things done. That was a big reason why a lot of people voted for him in 2020. Can he still make that claim? Well, Joe, when you say all these Republicans, and I actually, again, I was listening to your previous conversation. I do think he's trying to drive a wedge in the Republican Party between these MAGA Republicans and these mm. mainstream Republicans. I think there's about 15 to 20 percent of the Republican Party that the president feels like he can reach. That's the audience for a speech like this. And so um, I actually think it's very strategic for the president to try to separate the, 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 the folks on the Republican Party into people who believe in democracy and those who don't. People who he can work with and who care about the greater good of the country and those who don't. I think that's what he's doing here tonight. What do you think, Rick? Is Joe Biden the man to, to split, to divide the Republican Party at this time? You know, I don't think he's going to be the man to divide the Republican Party. I actually thought he had a much better opportunity after he won the presidency to actually legitimately reach out to Republicans and try to bring them into the administration. Um, But they didn't. Right. I mean, they're really no high profile uh, Republican appointees other than Cindy McCain. And so the reality is that that there's not going to be a bipartisan initiative in the next two years because it does look like there's going to be a potentially split uh, government and nothing's going to get done on Capitol Hill like it did this year. So he's already booked some good success with bipartisanship. Yep. Now it's now it's about the stakes of this election. I don't I don't think it's 2024. I think it's 2022. Hmm. I think that Democrats have uh, some metal in their back on, you know, really taking a hard shot at trying to keep the House. And 
the more Democrats I talk to, the more I, I'm not, it's not talking points. I think they really believe it. And so it isn't a bad platform, you know, when you say, I'm going to talk about the soul of our country, democracy, hmm. to say, this is the stakes of the election. It gets bigger, right? And by the way, Republicans care about democracy too. You know, all the recent polls show that this is something that's starting to divide our party. And, and yet I do think he wants to put the context bigger than just his legislative achievements. He wants to be about the future of our country as a democracy. Rick, you flagged uh, the new Quinnipiac poll uh, with 67% thinking democracy is in danger of collapse. That is a massive majority. It's a massive majority, and it's up just under 10% since January. So this is getting worse. It's worse not than January 6th. Yeah, worse than January in 2021. And so the reality is that, that he, ha you know, as president, this is something Joe Biden has addressed in the past as a candidate. As president, he, I think, feels compelled that this is his job. I think he tr he's a true believer in this regard. And he sees this as a major difference with Donald Trump and the MAGA crowd. And by the way, MAGA is Donald Trump. If Donald Trump were gone tomorrow, there would no there would be virtually nothing of a MAGA movement. It would be like, you know, some of the old caucuses that we used to have that mm. caused so much trouble for Republicans in the in the house. You know what else uh, this poll found this Quinnipiac poll, Joel, is the president's rising approval rating. Now we have to we have to put this in perspective. He came in at 40%, but it's up from only 31% 6 weeks ago. Uh, so 538 right now is pegging the number at 42% when you look at a couple of different polls here. Do you celebrate a move like that, or is this still a problem that he's underwater this close to the midterms? Oh, Joe, I'm a Democrat. We we like to mire <laughs> in our own self-doubt, right? I mean, this Got is what it. we do. Look, I do think the trend lines are pointing in the right direction for the president and Democrats. And that's what I think about with polling. It's less about the snapshot of the moment. It's more about where the arrow is pointed. And it's pointed in the right direction, one, the president is getting back to talking how the American people are used to hearing him. But also there's accomplishments. There's real things at the end of the summer that he and his allies in Congress were able to put forth and put in front of the American people as tangible, good, um, you know, returns on the promises that the president made. So I think you're certainly going to see that. By the way, the biggest jump it looks like is from Democrats. The president was very low or, or pretty low comparatively with Democrats. I think he was in the 70s in a yeah. previous poll, and now up over 80%. That's where he's making up ground. I have to ask you both about what happened last night in Alaska. This is the latest special election. Remember, we had New York. This one was to fill the seat held by the late Congressman Don Young. Did you hear who lost? I am a mama grizzly, and I'll rear up on my hind legs when somebody comes after my cubs. Yeah, Sarah Palin lost to the Democrat Mary Peltola in this special last night. Rick Davis, uh, Sarah Palin will live, and apologies in advance of this whole conversation. Uh, she will live on to fight another election in November. This is a short-term deal, but what does it tell us? Uh, in the wake of the special in New York about Republican prospects in the fall? Yeah, look, I mean, it's it's actually, I think, just as much about what's going on with uh, rank order voting, right? Because this was a quite yes, an unusual rank choice, election, right. rank choice voting. Uh, it, it's an unusual election in that regard. But look, I mean, you could argue that there was a little bit of uplift for uh, for Mary in, in, in the contest. But look, mm -hmm. most of the polling I've seen around a November election that will go through this all over again is that 
that that this could wind up. You know, Nick Begich was the first one out in this rank order, rank choice voting, and mm-hmm. and he may he may wind up being the winner out of the next go round because Sarah Palin may come in third in the current polling right. that I've seen around November. So this thing is a bit like a craps game, right? You just keep building on numbers until you <laughs> you crap out. And and I <laughs> not think a fan that, of rank choice voting. Yeah, well, I mean, it's interesting. I I, I think jury is out, and I think that the idea that a uh, significantly red state now has a uh, Democrat member of Congress representing the entire state is yeah. kind of novel. We're going to see how right. uh, how people in Alaska like that. Dave Wasserman at uh, the Cook Political Report tweeted, Joel, that uh, Democrats in the House just increased their landmass by 104 percent in one special election because it is Alaska we're talking about. But, uh, you know, speaking of ranked choice voting, I don't know if you heard uh, or saw this video. It's a very brief video that was captured by somebody's cell phone of Sarah Palin when she had learned she lost. And she was incredulous. If you listen, it's very brief. It's voting. Yeah. When it comes down to second and third place votes, that's going to uh, decide who's, who's, who's going to win. I mean, really? Alaskans want Joe Biden and Nancy Pelosi? Joel, you know, that's all we have on that. But uh, I won't get into a debate with you about ranked choice voting. I just wonder how much Alaskans hold against Sarah Palin, the fact that she quit when she was governor. Candidates matter. Um, local storylines, parochial issues matter. Um, you're, you're, you know, obviously we're a big audience in New York. Lots of people know about those special elections and mm-hmm. those primaries in New York a few weeks ago where those local issues kind of took precedent over the national storyline. So um, I don't know if the story here is ranked towards voting. I think it's about kind of the, the local legacy of Sarah Palin in Alaska, she was not the most beloved figure in that state by the time she departed that state and entered the national scene. And I think that might have a lot more to do with it than um, process, which I think Republicans yeah. have to be careful that they aren't poking holes at process every time they don't like mm-hmm. an outcome. Rick, was the Trump endorsement a, a help or a hindrance for her? Uh, well, it obviously, didn't help her enough, right? And, right. And so, um, I'm not sure. I'm not sure how much of an impact. I mean, she was already going to get all those. Uh, Trump voters that that were willing to vote for Sarah Palin, right? I mean, if anything, I think her image in Alaska is much bigger than Donald Trump's image in Alaska, and 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 equally divisive, right? So, I mean, you know, I don't think I don't think he could help or hurt her in Alaska. She's a she's a bigger personality than he is with that electorate. Do you have a thought on her chances in November? You know, look, I think they're limited. I mean, right now, you know, when I look at the polling data going into November, you know, she's she's third. And if yeah. she's third, she's first out. And wow. so the question is where her votes go. Probably the Republican. I doubt if any of her votes are going to go with the Democrats. So it, it's a completely different election. Uh, it just happens to be the same people. Great panel. Rick, thank you as always. Rick Davis, of course, Bloomberg Politics contributor and Republican strategist. Joel Payne, great to have you, Joel. I hope you'll come back and talk to us soon. Be part of the program again. Former director of African-American advertising for Hillary Clinton's presidential campaign. The fastest hour in politics. You're ready now for the speech tonight, maybe even the cocktail party beforehand. Don't you feel smarter? That's why we do this every day on Bloomberg. And we'll meet again tomorrow. Word is Labor Secretary Marty Walsh will be among those joining us on Jobs Day, and I look forward to that conversation. In the meantime, check out the speech tonight. We'll dissect everything and analyze it with our panel tomorrow. From Washington, I'm Joe Matthew. This is Bloomberg.
The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.